I promised that I would talk about Machik Lubdrin. She was a great teacher in her own lineage. So I practice and am trained in the Shankpa Kagyu tradition. But Machik was progenitor of her own lineage, different. But that lineage, the practice is so powerful and so beautiful that it is admired and practiced by many different lineages. She lived in the 11th to 12th century, so quite a while before you and I, though perhaps we were there to meet her also. And the name of her system of practice, if you ever care to know more, is the Mahamudra Ch. It's spelled C-H-O-D, pronounced Ch. So this morning we recited the Prajnaparamita, the Heart Sutra. So what Machik did, she was reading the Heart Sutra, like I mentioned this morning. She was young. She could recite much of it by heart. She kind of amazed people everywhere she went. That's how she got her job as a recitation master. And she was reading it, and then one day she understood, oh, things are not two. I have falsely divided them. How do you say it? It isn't things are one if it's not two. Thing are one? What would you say? I don't know. But it is one. And the dividing that is our natural habit, the dualistic habit, plants the seeds of suffering every time, every time, including the seeds of fear. So she had that realization, and she took the realization of the Prajnaparamita, and I don't know why, but she felt inclined to apply them towards negative mind states, and malignant forces. So in Tibet, both in the religion of Mun and Tibetan Buddhism, a lot of attention is paid to spirits and demons and dakinis and things like that. So there's a book in Tibetan that contains all of her teachings. It's a delightful book. It's called The Machik Namshe which means the complete explanation of Machik's complete explanation. There's a translation now, thanks to probably a decade's work by a wonderful lama in Colorado named Sarah Harding, and she translated it from the Tibetan at the request of her teacher. And her teacher died before the translation was finished, long time. So she was, like a good Vajrayana student, motivated then to finish the translation. But even if you have no interest in Chu, you should at least wander to a library and take a look at this book. What happens is her lineage of Chu divided into many sub-lineages. You know, each Lama has their own Dharma. And so the head of those lineages would come with a group of people and say, you know, Machik, I have some questions. And she would say, oh, son of something or other, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then she would answer the questions, and those are written down in Machik's Namshe. And also, there's a wonderful chapter, and if you read nothing else, you should read this chapter, about one of the, one of the people says, you know, tell me about the spirits of some kind. I can't remember because they're not one that I relate to in any practice. But she tells what they look like, and she tells what they wear, and she tells what kind of hats they have on, and what kind of shoes and what colors they are. And I think, how does she know that? I read that book on retreat, and I thought, it sounds like Los Angeles. They have purses and hats and special shoes. Mm -hmm. And it really made me think, I have not been thinking enough or open enough to someone as other than that, you know? And it started a kind of questioning of myself. 
who have I missed? Who have I shut out? Because I'm not relating to this group or that group of people. So the practice of Chu is a ritual feast, which is to say the whole feast takes place in the mind. And in 2018, I began a traditional part of Kagyu training called the three-year retreat. And it actually was about three and a half years, but, you know, give or take three years. And we did that practice every night on retreat. It was the last practice of the day. So the day started at about, started at four, but I got up at 3.30 for coffee, a little cheater. Mm-hmm. And then it went until, I think we started at 9.30 at night. Chu practice has a large hand drum and a bell. And so you have to, the first thing you have to learn to do is play the drum and the bell at the same time. It took most people about six months to coordinate that. And then there's also a little trumpet. And you, what you do is you do some visualizations and of course refuge and all these various preliminaries. And then you create a feast in your mind of the most precious thing that you own, a beautiful feast. And then you blow the little trumpet and you say, everyone I have ever harmed, everyone to whom I owe a debt which is unpaid through all of my countless lifetimes, please come. I've made you dinner. Please come. So in the beginning of doing this practice, it's very enchanting. Even if you don't understand the practice, it's so beautiful. I couldn't wait to do it every night. And we did it in our rooms alone. It was often dark, you know, so cozy. And in the beginning, I didn't relate to calling all those beings. I'd get stuck thinking, you know, who do I owe? And then I realized billions of people, billions of beings past, present, and future. And my teacher said something to me. He, he and the female teacher came once a month for two, three days. The rest of the time we were alone. And he said, are you enjoying Chu? And I said, oh, so much. And he said, it was my favorite practice on retreat. So then I thought, I really need to really devote to this practice. And he said, I'll tell you something. Sometimes at night, if you listen, when you invite the beings, they will come. That was not part of my paradigm in those days. So I said, okay, okay, yeah, all right. And he said, really invite them. I said, okay, okay. And he said an interesting thing. So in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and maybe other Buddhist traditions, I don't know, we wear a little red cord around the neck sometimes. If you go and see a guru, they'll give it to you. It's called a protection cord. And he said, when those, when you call the beings, take off the protection cord. Protect yourself from nothing. You have seriously harmed people that you think you never met. And you need to really mean this. So whatever you need, whatever they need from you, please offer it. I was so struck by that kindness. There was another very kind part of the Chu practice. So you offer to beings, you know, and in the, just like here, when it's dark in the woods, you hear noises, right? Coyotes and other things. So very easy to imagine. When we played the drum and the bell, it made a lot of racket. And then we played the flute, and it's a kind of a long horn, and it makes a kind of mournful sound. And so we call the beings and the animals would be activated in the fields outside the cloister fence. Now the fence was about eight feet high, so it didn't seem like they were coming in, though once a bear almost came in, came right up to the fence. 
But in the end of that practice, you take what's called the lakma, the leftover. So you just visualize it. You're making this up, you know, like we make up jobs and relationships and lives and houses. And then you put on a visor that has, it covers your eyes. Because the last beings you're going to invite are very shy. And they can only eat what others leave behind. They feel not entitled. The very opposite of entitlement. And so now you say, please come. Don't be afraid. I couldn't find the translation for this. I had to ask a Sikkimese teacher who came into retreat. And I said, we repeat this three times, but it's a little different. What does it mean? And he said, oh, let's see, English. Oh, it means please come. Don't be afraid. No, really. Don't be afraid. Just come. Just come. And so then these little beings come. We might say like the size of a mosquito. And they eat and you kind of hide behind the visor a little bit so they don't feel watched because they're quite shy. And you want them to feel welcome. And you tell them, don't hurry. I can stay here all night if you like. And when you feel the feast is finished, then you end the practice. And they say that uh, in the Tibetan tradition, all the beings go back and they're satisfied. All they wanted from you was connection. It's such a beautiful ritual. If you do it for a thousand, fifteen hundred times, then when you see beings who are antagonistic and troubled, you feel, don't be afraid. Come, take what you need from this mind, this body, this life. And of course, sometimes we fail. You know, something, someone shows up and then we're scared ourselves. And I learned to say even to myself, don't be afraid. It's okay. I'll give you what you need. To my own broken heart, I could say that. You might have heard of uh, the great Jamgong Kongtrul the Great, Jamgong Kongtrul Loju Taiye, who did so much amazing Dharma writing and teaching in his lifetime. It seemed like he must have been 10 people. He said, Chu is a radical method for cutting through ego fixation through these things. The willingness to accept what is undesirable. Through the disregard of difficult circumstances. Through the realization that gods and demons are one's own mind. Through the understanding that oneself and others are utterly equal. So in a text like this, when it says utterly equal, it doesn't mean this side for green people, this side for blue people. It means there aren't other people. We are all one people. So equal means, again, not divided. So I feel like this practice is very relevant to our experience today. It certainly has been relevant to my own formation. When I came out of retreat, so we came out in 2018, so many good things had happened. The Me Too movement and the beginning of a kind of energizing in my own children who are in their early 30s, deconstruction, they were calling it. And they said, oh, mama, you were in retreat deconstructing. We were out here deconstructing. It was so wonderful. Things were shaken up and different. And I felt, yes, that Chu is a practice for this time. But this practice is very long, takes most people six months to just be able to handle the synchronization of the drum and the bell and 
It has 12 or 13 melodies, some of them very unusual, many compelling and beautiful prayers. And it takes about an hour, hour and a half to, to do just one session. And so in that way, most people will not do the full ritual. So I thought, of course, we wouldn't have time on a three-day retreat to teach anything remotely like the practice. And yet I wanted to teach something about Machik because she's relevant. And so I remembered the time when she was a young woman at the period where she had the job of the recitation master in a monastery, and someone had a dream that the Acharya, whose name was Padampa Sanjay, or Dampa Samjay, sometimes translated, was coming from India to see Machik. And so someone came to her and said, he came, and he's here to see you. And so she said, okay. And she went to see him and she said, Dampa Sanjay, it's so wonderful you've come to Tibet to bring teachings to us. And he said, Machik Labdran, great Dakini, it is so wonderful that you have come to Tibet. Your lineage will rise like the sun and last for a long, long time and you will be enlightened. And she said, and I think, I don't know how old she was, but I think like a young person would say, oh, how will I do that? She said, you will benefit many people. You will be enlightened, you will benefit many people. And she said, oh, how will I do that? And so he gave what are called, they're often called Machik's instructions. And it's often taught that she gave them, and probably she did later, but originally, it's my understanding that they came from Padampa Sanjay. So when he talks to Machik, he is talking to a young woman who until she had the job as the chant master, much of her life was houseless. Before she was 20, both of her parents had died. She lost a sister and was raised by her brothers. And the crux of Chu is that whatever demons plague you, meet them with love and befriend them because they are not separate from you. So here are what he told her when she said, what will I do to be enlightened and how will I benefit beings? He said these things, you will expose your hidden faults. So these are instructions for enlightenment. I get excited every time I look at them. You will overcome hesitation. You will carry what you dare not. You will cut your fetters. You will give up attachments. You will keep to haunted places. You will know that beings are as vast as the sky and when going to places that scare you, you will seek the Buddha within yourself. And then he left and she went back to chanting, which is also kind of wonderful. So I don't know if this is true, but when I read these instructions, I think this is a roadmap to enlightenment, at least for one woman. So I always tell myself, maybe it would work for two. And so I have thought about them a fair amount, and I thought that I would give them to you. Before retreat, I sent out a little booklet, and each of those instructions is on one page of the booklet. And then a little exercise to give you an idea of how you could carry it around in the day. So first, he said, she would expose her hidden faults. And as soon as I started contemplating that, I thinking, I have a lot of faults, and mostly they are not hidden. Mostly they are totally obvious, and they expose themselves. So I don't think he was talking about those, and we have the Eightfold Path to work with those. But hidden faults, what would those be? 
So I'm not telling you something I've read in a commentary by a great master. So I'm instead wanting to engage you to engage these instructions yourself and to think for yourself, what does it mean if someone said to me, expose your hidden faults? What would I do? So I don't know what Machik's hidden faults were. It's hard for me to believe she had many at that point, but I know that my own run along the lines of being swept up in the drama of everyday life. I just watch the news and I get mad. And I think, huh, they should do something about that. <laughs> Remember the story of the Pope in the morning that he woke up and he remembered that some people that he was responsible for, I forget which Pope it was, were suffering and he thought, oh, I must tell the Pope. I must get up and go and tell the Pope. And then he woke up further and he thought, oh, I am the Pope. <laughs> I totally relate to that. So what does it mean to expose even that one fault? Does it mean confession? We have confession in Tibetan Buddhism. Does it mean to write a memoir, make it public? I don't think so. I think it means to expose it to one's self, which is a great act of courage and a bit of a science project. And so we sit in meditation and various mind states arise or we're up working and we watch the habits that we have that plant the seeds of suffering in ourselves and others. And we look for our fundamental confusions. And then in the moment we pause and we put the light of awareness on those and then just go about our business. No judgment, no commentary necessary. We have disrupted something by just putting the light of awareness on it. And then when we go back to the meditation cushion, it's very much in the Vajrayana style to sit and bring that same circumstance up and to, we always say, stir the pot until we begin to feel the feeling of that. What was it like in the moment I realized I was rude? What was it like in the moment I realized I injured someone else's confidence and we feel back into that moment with no conceptual analysis, no guilt, no blame, just the open heart and the eye of wisdom. It's very gentle, very gentle. The second prediction that Padampa Sanjay made was that Machik would benefit beings by overcoming her hesitation. Now, this could mean all kinds of things. I'm still thinking of this, and I'm thinking for this, she should have gone to a Zen monastery because that seems to be a big piece of the training method. But when I have thought about it, I've thought that the act of interrupting that overcoming hesitation, or, or maybe I should say what hesitation is. It's a little strategy, an unintentional strategy, something that we do that might be interrupting a moment of just the naturally arising wisdom, and it's too much in that moment to bear, and so we divert into shyness or talking or working or something different. It's a reaction to a flash of discomfort. And then in a time when we could have relied on the immediately and always available clarity of mind, instead we whoops, went off the road. So the opposite of that would be to just stay in the experience. And so maybe Machik became good at that. Maybe if she felt the very tiniest hesitation, she would just rest back into the feeling of the hesitation itself, which would disrupt the energy of that pattern and allow her to settle back into the clarity of that moment. 
The reason that I think that maybe she worked something like that is that the whole practice system that she developed, the Mahamudra Ch, is about calling into your mind and your space and your heart your most frightening, your most dreaded experience and your most seductive experiences, those pleasures that really grab you, calling them in and letting those feelings stir up and then just sitting, keeping them company, not analyzing, just being a good guest, making tea and saying, sit down, I see you mean to talk to me. I'm listening. We call those things both the pleasures and the fears, demons. The word for that in Tibetan is du. Du, spelled D-U with an umlaut, D. Du. Sir Harding translated as devils. But having been a Baptist for a while as a child, I can't bear to say devil, <laughs> so I say demon. But to be clear, those demons, remember in Chu, one of the founding principles or the guiding principles is they are not something outside yourself. They are your own mind. Nothing in gentle Buddhist practice, as I understand it so far, things can be fierce, but they are never violent. All right, Padampa Sanjay's next prediction was that Machik would benefit beings by carrying what she dared not. Wow, this could mean so many things. I have been around so many blocks with this instruction, you know, journeys, and ask myself in a moment of hesitation, am I being asked to carry something that I can't. Sometimes it's like when my mother needed hospice care during Chu, and I thought, how can I take care of her? I don't actually, I'm, who am I to do this? And then I thought, how could you not? It's your mother, 16 years older than me. And of course, it was one of the best experiences of my life. So wonderful to usher out the human being who ushered me in as we change bodies and carry on for our next lives. And the hospice team, of course, did 98%, taught me everything so patient and available. So it was a beautiful experience. So sometimes it's like that, or sometimes I think teaching the Dharma for example, I come in and you do the mudra of, you know, the Anjali mudra, and I feel like, oh, please don't do that. I want to go, like, stand behind those shades. And I know you're not doing it to me. You're doing it to the teacher's seat. I know that. I know that. But still, something inside me, a leftover piece of unfinished business, and I think, you know, oh. And yet to say no to that, I could say, as the Lama de Keling, I could say, we don't do that in our center. But that would be taking away your ritual relationship with the seat of teaching. And that doesn't belong to me, that belongs to you. So that's a little thing that I carry that I dare not. What it means to carry something is to meet it directly, to not shy away. My mother used to say sometimes, taking care of an elder in our family, or people used to bring, you know, I found a cat in a ditch, bring the cat to Pat, she'll take care of it. She used to say, it is a joyful burden to carry this cat. And I knew even when she did it that she didn't really want to do that. 
but somebody needed to do it. And she had, she was compassionate like that. So she would say, I would say, oh, I'm sorry, you have to take care of that cat. And she would always say, it's a joyful burden to care for this cat. So meeting it, meeting it is where we've been practicing shamatha in our meditation sessions, just simple presence and noticing. That's all we do, nothing to fix, nothing's broken. Witnessing, feeling, inviting, opening. It's so very simple. It also, at a kind of deeper level, asks us to drop what we know about any given experience and to just meet it fresh and to hold the idea or at least the practice that what I think about this actually not so important. What I've been taught about this in my family of origin is not what's relevant right now. I'm carrying this. You know, if you found a baby in a box beside the road, you'd pick up the baby. And while you were carrying that baby, you might be having all kinds of thoughts. What will people think? I'm a nun with a baby. Oh, there goes my reputation. Or what will I, how will I take care of my responsibilities? Now I have a baby. What will I do? And this meeting, it just requires you to let go of all that. Just carry the baby. It's quite simple. Carrying the baby will tell you what to do about carrying the baby. Who knows what you might discover, might become, might experience, might learn. You won't even have to work on deconstruction. Things just deconstruct themselves because of impermanence. You will only have to carry the truth of each experience. It's not a doctrine. This is not something that you need to believe. Don't believe anything I say on this retreat. Just try it. If it's true, then put it in your toolbox. And if it's not true then put it in your shoe <laughs> and wear it around for a while just in case you want it in your toolbox later. There's a certain amount of meditation practice which is carrying, you know? We're asked to carry our experience into the heart of stillness and awareness. But don't you know when you sit down? I often catch myself when I sit down. Oh, my right knee is going to hurt. Oh, I'm feeling sleepy. I'm going to be sleepy in this. That's not carrying the practice. That's carrying the idea of practice. But Ampasanjay's next prediction was that Machik would benefit beings by cutting fetters, by giving up attachments. These were actually, I think, two statements, but I'll treat them as one. The word ch means sever, cut. A very powerful word. In a part of the ch training, if a thought comes in the mind, practitioners might be trained to say and just liberate the thought into space. So if you're on a retreat with people and they have that training, they might be, you know, sitting in a Tibetan style meditation shrine when you, you can hear like popcorn cooking. <laughs> At first I thought it was enormously annoying and then I thought it's fabulous. Just thoughts liberating into space, going back home, wherever they came from. They were just here and they just left. And it isn't that you cut the thought. Again, this is not pushing out or rejecting, but it's that you let go of your attachment to whatever the thought brings up, the feelings, the intellectualizing, the distancing, the analysis, all those things. You cut all that. And maybe the thought will stay. Sooner or later it will go. Maybe it will get bigger. You never know. Thoughts have their own life. 
one thing which was a little sticky for me in the beginning is the degree of responsibility that the practice was asking me as an individual to take for my own experience. I remember asking my teacher before going into the three-year retreat the week before, we got to have a meeting and I said, I am ever one to set the bar low, you know, so I don't fail. That's one of my habits, one of my fetters. So I said, what's the very least I should expect from this retreat? The very least. This is after saving, you know, 20 years and selling my house and shipping my children off to college. Why did I ask, what's the very least? So I said, what's the very least? And he said, well, at the very least, you should walk out the gate understanding that you alone are responsible for your experience. It was tempting to leave. When I have a difficult experience, I get out my favorite tool, which is a blame thrower. And I go to town, and it took me a very long time to let go of that habit on retreat, even though there was no one to blame. 20 hours a day, we were alone in our room. So if I was feeling some experience very Clearly, literally, I was generating it. And yet for months, I would say six months or so, I would sit in my box. You sit in a little box kind of like this, as if this had a back and sides. I would sit in my box and blame others for my discomfort. If only the cooks would, if only the other retreatants would be quiet so I could sleep at night. If only so-and-so had not forgotten to send in coffee, those kind of things. But really, we, we are responsible for our own experience. Where else could it come from? And so in regards to cutting fetters and giving up attachments, the Buddha can't do it. We know that. Our teachers can't do it for us. Our therapists can't do it. They could show us the way, but it's actually our work, and it's joyful work. I resented it in the beginning. Like, I have to take enough responsibility for my kids, for my family at work. I don't want more responsibility, but I discovered... It's joyful, because when you cut a fetter, it's like a link of a chain that's been holding you down for a long, long time. And then cutting one, it's like learning to apologize, you know? First time you say, oh, I'm sorry, and you think, actually, it was his fault. I don't want to say I'm sorry, but, you know, I want to look like a good nun, so that wins out, so I'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he says, oh, it's nothing. It's okay. And then I think, oh, no one died. I could do that again. And then something happens and I say, oh, I'm sorry. This is a piece of the decorum of a nun in the Tibetan tradition. Definitely it was new for me. And then she would say, oh, you know, it's, it's no problem. And then I would think, oh, no one died then either. And so then I would try. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I realized, yes, I am sorry for these things. And it was not difficult, it was joyful to let go of those chains, those things I thought I had to do and say. I'm thinking about fetters, so this is fetters and attachments, but we talk so much about attachments in Dharma centers and retreats. I think you probably know a lot about that. But one of the fetters that I've experimented with that I'm really interested in experimenting with more is the fetter that I have put on myself about the idea that I should be happy. I've been looking at that for a long time. First of all, what does that mean? Second of all, who says? <coughs> Where did that idea come from? And lately, I have been realizing that the problem is not that I'm not happy. The problem is that I sometimes think I am not happy. I don't know if I can explain this to you, but 
if I sit in meditation and I stop making myself unhappy, I let the mind and the body settle, I see there's only happiness in there. It's already there. All I need to do is quit disrupting my own happiness. My essence is ease and joy. And no matter how cranky I feel or how grumpy I get or how tired I am, I could just sit down and put my finger in that pool of happiness and realize it's complete. There is no other place to go for happiness that is a more constant happiness. And one of the beautiful things about it in the midst of the pandemic has been it's free. It's free. And so you just sit down and you just stop doing everything unhappy and there's the happiness. But it might not look like the happiness to which I have addicted myself. It's kind of quiet for me. It may be different for you, but it's kind of a quiet. Uh, these days I call it ease and joy. It's just relaxed, like it's enough, it's done. Did you ever have a long project and you worked so hard? Maybe you were a student writing a paper or maybe you, you build something and you made it and maybe it was two o'clock in the morning and you got to the end of it and you sat back in your chair and you looked at that thing and it was done and you were satisfied. There was nothing left to do. And so just for a minute you leaned back in your chair and you felt... And every narrative that has driven your life that made you unhappy just took a rest for a second. It's that happiness. That's how I experience it. When I had my second child, you know, 23 hours of labor, I think. <laughs> and then they decided, okay, C-section. <laughs> just, just get this baby out. And so there she was, beautiful, complete, whole, big eyes. And I suddenly felt nothing else to do. It doesn't get more complete than that. It wasn't a thought I had. It wasn't a story. It wasn't a job that I needed to do that I could check off the list. It's just you see a baby and you think, it's all there. It's so beautiful. Also that time, it's that kind of happiness. So it ranges from a kind of contentedness all the way up to bliss. Then the next prediction that... Padampa Sanjay had for Machik on her path to enlightenment was that she would benefit beings by keeping to haunted places. These days, Pema Chudran popularized that as go to the places that scare you. So you would go to the places that scare you. So I lived for, I don't know, three or four years in Nepal. And during that time, I traveled to India fairly often to study with my Tibetan teacher. And sometimes when it was cold in winter, I would get on a train. This, I'm old, you know, so this was back a ways. You could just get on a train with the equivalent of about $100 and not know where you were going. And I like to just get on different trains and ride them until the tracks ran out. And I saw some pretty amazing things. I would go to the third-class cars that open up like boxcars and just sit there and watch the scenery go by. And I saw some cemeteries in India. They're not like here in rural India. They're scary. Vultures, have you ever seen a vulture? Very big. And they have no feathers on their neck. And they have big beef. And when they are dismembering an animal or a person or whatever, they just take it mouthful by mouthful. It's quite shocking to see that the first time. And in Nepal, trekking sometimes for fun in Nepal in the warmer months, I would just go walking for a month or two or three in the mountains and 
sometimes in little villages, I would see those kinds of cemeteries. There's a body on the ground. And then they would bring some wood, but it takes a while to bring the wood, you know, a day or two. They would bring the wood and put the body on the fire and burn that fire. So wonderful to see how temporary we are, but scary. And sometimes I would pitch my tent close to those places because I was reading in books, not yet reading Dharma, but novels, you know, <laughs> about explorers doing that as a kind of bravery thing. And in those days, I was wanting to be a courageous person. So I pitched my tent and wow, at night, I don't know who comes, but noisy animals come. And they feast on the corpses and they fight with each other. And it's, it was hair raising. I was pretty brave when I was young, but it was hair raising. Those are the places that scare me. It doesn't work to go to a cemetery today. I could pitch a tent in a cemetery in Portland. Well, maybe not today in Portland, but up until recently. You know, just pitch a tent in the cemetery. I used to take my kids for Sunday picnics in the cemetery, for which they still penalized me. <laughs> they said, we didn't mind going. You could have told us it was out of the ordinary, so we didn't tell our friends. But we do have charnel grounds. Every person has a charnel ground, a place where they go to bury things, a place where they take their dead dreams, a place where all the things they don't want to deal with are brought to die and disintegrate and disappear. Maybe it's your fear of failing to live up to somebody's expectations or a fear of houselessness or a fear that you could have COVID and die. So it's good to sit and think like Machik apparently did. What are my charnel grounds? What are my haunted places? What are the things that visit me over and over and scare me? And if you're looking for fearlessness when you work with those things, remember Machik's instruction so clear. These demons, these do that haunt you, they are your own mind. And so starting small, not with the biggest demon that's ever visited you. You can, but you might not want to. Start with a small one a small regret that you have from years ago. My mother confessed to me two weeks before she died. She said, remember when you had your first job and you bought a pair of shoes and you paid $20? And I told you that was kind of sinful, <laughs> sinful level of indulgence. <laughs> and I said, oh, vaguely, it's not so important, you know? I thought you're dying. We need to talk about this. <laughs> and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I had no business. And then she explained, you know, where that came from. Her mother grew up in the Depression and so forth and so on. And then she confessed a, a delightful thing. She said, I myself, when I was seven and lived in Portland stole $10 out of my mother's purse, and had the most glorious day of my life. <laughs> I caught the bus, I skipped school, I went to Newberry's, I got a little hat, which I could never have because we couldn't afford them, and I bought a lot of candy, and I bought some games, and I kept having all this money left over. People kept giving me money back, she said, I couldn't figure it out. And so she went down by the river and she played, and then she said, it started to get dark, you could let your children out till dark in Portland in those days. And she said, I realized, oh, when I bring these things home, my mother will know that I took the money. And so I found a culvert and I stashed them in there. And then I went home and my mother said to me, where have you been? And I said, just out playing. And she said, you haven't seen, there's money missing from my purse. Have you seen it? And I said, no, no. 
And so she said, I think telling you you shouldn't spend that money on your shoes had something to do, little leftover arc of energy. She let that whole thing go. Isn't that wonderful? Two human beings at the end of one of their lives. Just saying, like, just want you to know that thing I did, sorry. And the other one saying, oh yeah, no, no problem. Cleared, that karma cleared. So how you deal with your haunted places will be very personal. Maybe you will save it till you die like my mom did. Or maybe you will deal with them continuously. Or maybe, maybe in the Zen tradition there's a way that in a moment they're gone. I hope that's true. I hope I can learn it. The idea is that we do ch. We cut our attachment and aversion to those experiences. And we just face the truth. And in that moment of truth is a moment of every truth. Impermanence, you will see. Interconnectedness, you will see. And so that moment then is your, we call it the guru of phenomena, your teacher. Padampa Sanjay further predicted that Machik would benefit beings by knowing that beings are the vast, as vast as the sky. Did it hiding? Thank you. <laughs> we have a saying in the Kagyu tradition, if you're not crying, you're not Kagyu. <laughs> I don't know what it is about the Kagyu method, but it produces people who have handkerchiefs in their pockets. The most common thing I hear in one-on-one -on -one meetings, which is one of the primary methods by which I share Dharma with students, is some version of the words, I'm so lonely. I feel so separated. I feel so apart. I feel afraid to be together. I feel afraid to be alone. Some version of that. And if you're having that experience, I can tell you right now what I'll say. Then you can spare yourself the meeting. <laughs> Save the drive across town. I will say, focus on others. You're hurting yourself by focusing on your own happiness. So what you want, manifest that for others. If you wish someone would invite you to a party, make a party and invite all the uninvited if you wish that someone would appreciate you, then appreciate everyone who appears in your day that day and start investing in the experience of others. And I think that by doing that, it's, it's maybe not fail-proof, but almost fail-proof way to accomplish your own happiness is to stop Focusing on that and to focus on the well-being of others is a whole path in Buddhism, right? We could forget in the Tibetan tradition all the rituals and just practice bodhicitta. It would definitely not be a lifetime wasted. And then Padampa Sanjay said last that she would benefit beings by when she was in the scary places, seeking the Buddha within. 
I think I'm probably singing to the choir on this one. I don't have any great insight here, but the Buddha, the awakened one, the great wisdom, the great compassion, the great love of all phenomena, all beings, is not outside you. We are not, in our Dharma practice, following a guy. We are not following a woman. It is not any kind of personality cult. We are following the guide of our own inner wisdom, which is not different nor separate than the Buddha's. And our method for doing that is always turn inward. When I don't like what's happening and I reach for an antidote to that, I want to work, I want to eat, I want to sleep, I want to be famous, I want to have a different car, whatever it is, the moment we see that turning inside, it's so simple, isn't it? Relying on that clear seeing. I am a person, Hogan will vouch for this, who can think a problem to death. I have training and even a degree in diagramming it and then building curriculum and then training lots of graduate students to understand it. I have all the skills, almost completely useless, almost. How much better just to sit and stop doing everything else and look directly at the thing. It's a, it takes a kind of leap of faith, doesn't it? Like, I can't remember. I think when I came to live at the monastery a couple of years ago, I've been practicing almost 30 years. And I kept having war with, like, I want to understand this. I don't want to sit with it. I want to construct something to make it better or to change it, you know. How could that still be happening after 30 years of practice? But because you sit many times a day here, then you're just back looking at the thing. And so even a poor and lazy student like myself eventually would see like, oh, I got up from that session. I knew what to do. I hadn't thought about it at all. It is quite convincing, and I encourage you also to do this. This is the seeking the Buddha within. So simple, so restful. There was a line in the Heart Sutra that we recited this morning, and I read it for the first time on the three-year retreat. So little going on there that a line from a sutra can really pierce the heart and stay with you for the rest of your life. This one, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita, and thus the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there's no fear. With nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita, the perfection of wisdom, and thus the mind is without hindrance, without hindrance there is no fear far beyond all inverted views. One realizes nirvana. That's a story about looking within. So those are the instructions that Padampa Sanjay, or the some people say the predictions that he gave Machik, in answer to her question, what will I do to awaken and what will I do that benefits beings? And all of those instructions inspired her to be Tibetan's greatest master, perhaps, of fearlessness. And so I thought, oh, in a two-day retreat, we could make a list of those and take them home and think about those and practice those things. Maybe they are like many Dharma instructions. You know, if you get a list of 10, you think, oh, it's 10 separate things. But then as you practice them, you see, oh, they aren't separate. They're actually like a web 
one relates the other, and when you do one, you understand the other, and when you increase in one, it impacts the others. So I would say if 10 seems overwhelming, just pick one, just pick one, contemplate it, study it, and then meditate, letting go of all concept.